Was Anthem for the year 2000 hard to write? Did it take, was it 2000 years in the making? No, um, Anthem for the year 2000 took about 10 minutes to write. That was the quickest song I've ever written. Really? Yeah. Oh, no, Lie to Me off the last album was the quickest and that took like five seconds or something. Welcome to Too Much of Not Enough, a Silverchair podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Hedger, and in this episode, I'll be talking about Silverchair's third album, 1999's Neon Ballroom. had a really positive response to the podcast so far. So if you are enjoying the podcast, maybe your friends would also enjoy the podcast. That's honestly the best way to spread the word about the show, just good old fashioned word of mouth. But of course, in terms of the algorithm, ranking the show five stars and giving it a review in Apple Podcasts is also really helpful. And as always, you can get in touch via Instagram at Silverchair Podcast and Facebook at facebook.com slash silverchairpodcast. Or you can email me at silverchairpodcast at gmail.com. Okay, with all that out of the way, let's get to Neon Ballroom. Now I have managed to be the To be the victim without the We have arrived. Neon Ballroom is the album that drew a line in the sand. With this album, Silverchair had made a definitive statement. This is who we are now, and we're going to continue on this path. You can come along for the ride, or you can get off here, but make no mistake, we won't be going back. Because with Neon Ballroom, it was a watershed moment. It's the album that made people start taking them seriously, in Australia anyway. Dark themes had always been in their lyrics. The first album had a song called Suicidal Dream, after all. But now it added a first-person perspective, specifically Daniel's anorexia, clinical anxiety and depression disorders, and the massive pharmaceuticals that came with them. So yes, this is the episode where we'll occasionally be touching on mental health issues and associated disorders. So I want to say calmly but firmly, if this brings up any issues for you, it might be best to skip this one. Neon Ballroom was the first time Silverchair were making music that felt, for lack of a better term, grown up. Even for people who had noticed the progression from Frog Stomp to Freak Show, Neon Ballroom was something else. It was a delicate balance of art and commercial rock. And yes, for the most part, it was still rock music. After all, this was 1999. Pop radio still played a lot of rock music, although that does depend on which country you're talking about. But the funny thing was, the music on Neon Ballroom wasn't less commercial necessarily. It was more artful, more mature, but it was still built on a solid foundation of pop hooks. And I'm using pop in a traditional sense. But this is where Australia's tall poppy syndrome popped up again. 
To this day, under many posts about Silverchair online, you will see guys, and it's usually guys, talking about how Silverchair was shit after Freak Show and that they need to get back to making rock music. There are even some extremists who think the experimentation shown on Freak Show, a thoroughly heavy rock album at its base, was too much. However, for all the moaning from some of the ex-fans, listening to Neon Ballroom now, it's still largely a hard rock album, especially considering where the band went on its next two albums. Silverchair didn't need to alter their sound all that much to annoy the purists. So it was still rock music. But the rock songs on Neon Ballroom took different forms. There was the first single, and the main thing that resembled Silverchair's previous work, Anthem for the Year 2000, but even that contained electronic bleeps and bloops. There's Dearest Helpless, a rock song for sure, but it's quite angular and strange. Satin Sheets was a punk rock song, not unlike Lie to Me on Freak Show, but this time with these again electronic elements designed to challenge the listener. And Spawn again was the closest Silverchair had ever come to metal. Even Anna's song was a power ballad of anything. Ditto the piano-driven Miss You Love. For all those Frog Stomp-loving fans who didn't like this album, Shade and Cemetery were, to date, the most pure ballads in their whole catalogue, both from the earlier albums. But Neon Borum is a different beast. It gave the audience a new impression of the band, and that's sometimes more important than the actual sound. So let's go back a step and catch up to where Silverchair were before Neon Ballroom. Touring on the back of Freak Show hit the band hard. Specifically, it hit Daniel Johns hard. After they'd graduated high school, the band embarked on an Australia-wide tour, their first without Guardians. Before that, of course, they'd been touring internationally in stops and starts during the school holidays. The tour had taken its toll on Ben and Chris too, though the more larrikin members of the band took it in their stride, choosing travel and relaxation to recuperate from the pressures of being still teenage rock stars. The end of the tour was meant to be the start of a year off for the band. So one minute they were travelling the world, having new experiences, being exposed to new and more varied music, and then they were home again. Whiplash. No school or other obligations to distract them now. A relief. And maybe a burden. So instead of having a holiday, Daniel isolates himself for three months and writes the next Silverchair album. We originally intended to have a year off and then start doing the stuff again, but didn't work that way. Yeah, afterwards I just, um, you know, was going to the beach or camping on the beach and going forward driving and just fueling up. Doing it. Doing it. I was home for about two weeks and it didn't feel right not writing music, so I just started writing the album. I did nothing. I um, went surfing. I went out a lot. I walked in and I just looked at them and they were black, suntanned, and I was just like, oh, okay, I get it. That's what I was supposed to be doing. By now, Daniel had developed intense anxiety and paranoia. The rabid fan base and the just as rabid haters were no better than the bullies he'd been dealing with at high school. Both groups made him feel scared and alone. Daniel has said that the three members of the band all started out very similar temperamentally, but that, ironically, going through the exact same experience as a band spat them out the other side as complete opposites. As the frontman, singer, and de facto spokesperson for the band, maybe this was bound to happen. 
Most of the attention was on him, after all, and he found being a famous object of desire and teen heartthrob very troubling. Of course, it's a double-edged sword. Those are the people who made him a success. I'm sure Daniel was aware of that too, which drove the anxiety. As he would say on a later album, he didn't want to be lonely. He just wanted to be alone. To this day, he's been very ambivalent about the fandom, always being careful not to play into it too much or engage, but never to condescend. So while Ben and Chris recuperated with their girlfriends and traveling, Daniel moved out of his parents' home into a house on Merriweather Beach. In fact, Daniel's parents had insisted he see a therapist who in turn recommended he move out. The new place was still physically close to his family home, but separate. His family were the only visitors he allowed, and usually then only to drop off groceries. It was apparently a bare house with very little furniture. It sounds like a lonely little place, despite the great view, but this is where Daniel would write the songs that would become Neon Ballroom. Neon Ballroom's sound wasn't born of listening to new music. It was born from watching movies. One of the few things Daniel would leave his house to do in this time was to rent videos. So Daniel's guiding idea when composing these songs was that of a soundtrack, of a movie in his head, a soundscape. That was the idea anyway, but Daniel's strong songwriting chops couldn't help but shine through with a lot of hooky melodies and pop structures. Make no mistake, it was a departure for Silverchair, but Daniel knew which lines he could draw outside of in the first place. You have to know the structure before you can try to break it. In fact, all of the songs except maybe Emotion Sickness have a very hook-oriented pop structure. So anyway, Daniel was watching movies and writing poetry. In fact, during this time, he apparently hated listening to music. I've developed a way now to, to, to channel all energy into a positive and creative energy and make, make something out of it. But around that time, I, didn't, I just had all this energy. A lot of it was negative and I had a lot of things going on in my head that I couldn't deal with. And... But, yeah, it was a lot different back then. Music, I hated music. I hated you it. hated it? Yeah, and I, yeah, and, the, and I wrote an album called Neon Borum in that time where I hated music. Really, everything about it I hated, but I couldn't stop doing it, and I felt like a slave to it. And then, you know, there's other times where I just hate myself and everything I've ever done and every bit of music that's ever been created from me, and felt like I backed myself into a corner at 18 and from now on I'm the guy from Silverchair and I've got to do this and that and now I don't even eat, I can't even go out for dinner, so I'm so bored, couldn't do anything, <laughs> so boring. Though he had started writing some songs, lyrics first for Freak Show, with this new batch of songs he would write poems and, and literally cut them into the lines that he liked and arrange them into lyrics that way. If you look over the lyrics, you can kind of tell that that's how they came together. This time around, Daniel had a message he wanted to get across first, rather than the music being the primary thing, which is a terrifying thing for somebody who already has a platform and who had already experienced his lyrics being misinterpreted. Remember the Israel Sun court case fiasco? And he hadn't even really cared about lyrics back then. But if he was going to have people look more closely at his lyrics, he wanted it to be on his own terms. The difference between the lyrics on the first two albums and the lyrics on Neon Ballroom is that he didn't take one idea for a lyric and then try and build around it, as he did on the first two albums, with sometimes lacklustre results. On Neon Ballroom, he had a bunch of lines that he really liked and put them together to create something collage-like, yes, but full of implied meaning. 
Neon Ballroom is where Daniel decided that if he couldn't always be a great lyricist, he could at least always be weird, interesting, and often compelling. I've always really liked this style of lyrics, which like that this album has, but I've always avoided it because I wanted to really get a strong message across and so people that listen to our music could understand them. But now I think the people that actually listen to our music have grown up mm. and they can actually read into lyrics a lot more. It's something I noticed straight away when I first heard this album. I remember loving reading the CD booklet for Neon Ballroom because each song had been laid out on its own page with an image that somehow reflected the song. What Paint Pastel Princess has to do with Ben putting on lipstick in the mirror, I'm not sure, but everything was so much more evocative on Neon Ballroom, from the lyrics to the artwork. Lyrically, Neon Ballroom is also the start of Daniel's love of playing on words and clever alliterative phrases. Addict with no heroin, bow and arrow packs, cold copied carbon coping. This album is chock full of that stuff, and it's something that Daniel's loved doing all the way through Silverchair's albums and into his other projects. However, concurrent with the songwriting was Daniel's further descent into anxiety, depression, paranoia, and the related anorexia nervosa. This is reflected basically in every lyric on the album, making it at times a harrowing listen. Whenever I'm depressed, I tend to write a lot. I don't even try writing when I'm in a good mood. In June 1998, the band again entered Festival Studio in Sydney, once again with Nick Launay as producer. I wanted to work with him again because he wasn't like other producers that just, you know, they've just got a big power trip thing happening and they just can't listen to anyone they always know best. Nick's just really open-minded and he'll listen to everything I have to say. But this was not the same band who Launay had recorded with two years earlier. In fact, to even get to this stage, Launay had to do some caretaker work. As a dry run for the new album, both for the band and for Launay, Silverchair had gotten together in February to record the song Untitled for the soundtrack to the 1998 Godzilla movie. Apparently it was a reworked version of a song originally slated for Freak Show. Now, I am planning on doing a B-Sides episode, so I won't talk too much about this track, but when you listen to it, it sounds like the exact midpoint between Freak Show and Neon Ballroom. It's a pity they never gave it a proper title, because it might be more acclaimed if it wasn't just called Untitled. I always dislike when an artist can't title something and it goes with the most banal option. Anyway, that recording done, the band disbanded and basically had little or no contact for the next few months. When recording time got closer, Nick Lornay stayed with Daniel's family for a week of pre-production. Daniel was unsure whether his new songs could even be translated onto an album, or whether the songs were suited for Silverchair at all. In an interview with Audio Technology magazine, Lornay said that to convince Daniel it could be done, he showed him some of the albums he'd worked on that had a more ambitious bend to them. The one that Daniel apparently latched onto was Kate Bush's The Dreaming, which used a lot of really creative recording techniques. To quote Lornay, it wasn't like he said, this is what I want to do. It was more a case of, it can be done. And the fact that I had engineered that record and was sitting there in front of him made him realize that yes, it really can be done. And yes, it can be a Silverchair record. It's worth speculating that Nick Lornay challenging Daniel to think bigger in terms of what a Silverchair album could sound like is potentially a pivotal moment for the band. I do wonder whether Nick deserves more credit than he gets for what became the Silverchair sound. In addition, Nick also acted as mediator when the band's interpersonal relationships had suffered during the downtime, particularly between Daniel and Ben. 
Aside from that February recording session, the band hadn't seen each other in months. The band didn't reconvene until May or June when they met to rehearse the new material, material that Ben and Chris hadn't even heard yet. And this was only two weeks before they were booked in to record. So Lorne got the band set up in a Newcastle rehearsal space and Daniel tentatively showed the others his new songs. Apparently Ben and Daniel had some bad blood to sort out. Ben felt rejected while Daniel was going through his anorexia and other mental health issues. And Daniel, for his part, was concerned about showing his best mate the new songs and didn't want to be rejected musically, especially since for this album, they hadn't written anything together. But the story goes that once Daniel started showing them the new songs, Ben and Chris, though hesitant at first, got excited and started throwing in rhythmic ideas. The boys were back, but changed. Daniel had another announcement for them. From now on, Daniel was going to be the sole writer in the band. That was his condition for staying in Silverchair. His new conceptual way of writing wasn't going to work by jamming on riffs the way they used to write. It's hard to get a read on what Ben and Chris truly thought about this. I feel like in the media coverage and interviews, everyone was fine with the new arrangement, but they kind of had to be. What option did they have? For his part, Chris had apparently tried to write songs in the past, but admitted that everything he did sucked. Ben, however, was quite confident in his songwriting abilities. He had brought the song Trash to the Neon Ballroom Sessions, which ended up as a B-side to the Anna's Song single. The extra royalties he had been receiving from the previous two albums was probably a hard thing to give up as well. But that was the new condition that would steer Silverchair in the direction they went. And so, back to festival studios they went. Like I mentioned on the Freak Show episode, Nick Lorne likes to record bands live and use the best live takes to build on, rather than everything being recorded separately. And that's essentially how he recorded Neil Borum as well. He would then edit the best takes together, but often just for a small thing, like a better drum fill. Some songs also had no editing. Apparently the basic track for Do You Feel The Same is one complete live take, for example. In addition, just like on Freak Show, they again didn't use a click track for most of the songs. Even in the 90s, most rock albums were being done to a click track, so everything could later be snapped to a grid and fixed in Pro Tools. But because of the organic, warm feeling Daniel was going for on Neon Ballroom, Nick Lorne's preferred method really worked well for them. Well, it was pretty much the same as how we'd always done it through Frog Shop and Freak Show. I mean, it was um, Ben Daniel and I would go in there and play it live, mm. and um, we'd pretty much just keep the um, drum and bass, and if the rhythm guitar was good, well, we'd keep that as well, and then mm. it's just a matter of adding on top of that over and over again. Mm. Vocals and overdubs were recorded at Mangrove Studio on the New South Wales Central Coast, something that Daniel would repeat for Diorama as well. He liked having the vocals recorded in a different place, and this was a smaller, more intimate studio owned at the time by in excess bass player Gary Gary Beers. For the tech heads, Lorne used a single Newman M49 microphone to record Daniel's vocals there. Also, apparently, the first vocal session at Mangrove had to be completely scrapped and re-recorded due to some technical error that nobody could ever figure out. A very pissed off Daniel had to come back a fortnight later and redo everything from scratch. As a singer myself, that sounds like absolute hell. By the time he recorded there for Diorama, the studio had almost been completely rebuilt, so these kind of errors did not plague the recordings that time. This technical hiccup might explain why there are relatively few vocal tracks and harmonies on Neon Ballroom. For an album full of lush strings, pianos, and wall of sound guitars, the vocals don't get that same treatment. Maybe Daniel didn't have the energy or the inclination to do so. Then again, back then, Daniel was still making demos on cassette and had to imagine the arrangements in his mind. 
It's only when we get to Diorama does Daniel's love of heavily multi-tracked vocals become really apparent, where he builds up choirs just from his own voice. By which time, of course, he had a proper recording studio in his home to experiment in. But obviously, that's for another episode. But I will say, this approach to the vocal recording gives Daniel's voice a directness on Neon Ballroom that is unique to this album alone in their catalogue. Remember all that she can say The underlying premise of this podcast is that Sewerchair's music exists on a continuum. So I want to put these albums into context and try to show that there was a somewhat linear progression in terms of experimentation and expanding of musical horizons. It's why I've been trying to compare their earlier albums to things they did on later albums so we can see the development of certain ideas as the career progressed. Neon Borum sounds like a big step forwards, and it is, but it's also masterful in its implication of complexity. It accomplishes this by what I would call, I guess, sonic trickery. This will actually reach its zenith on Diorama, but it starts here. After all, most of the songs on Neon Ballroom are still in 4-4 with a typical rock backbeat to support them. The main exceptions are Miss You Love, which is in 6-8, and Black Tangled Heart, which is in 3-4. Dearest Helpless also has its middle section in 6-8, but still pretty standard. However, on Neon Ballroom, Daniel expanded the different guitar tunings he'd been using on the first two albums and now wrote not just in drop D, but in open chord tunings, which allowed him to play what sounds like complex chords and guitar parts, but are quite simple to execute. It also means that the chord voicings, even with a standard chord shape, are much more rich and interesting. It's as much a writing technique as it is about the actual sound. Tuning your guitar in a new way and just experimenting rather than getting too in your own head. This is not a new thing. It goes back to at least Joni Mitchell and older. In fact, this is probably something Daniel first learnt from Jimmy Page of Led Zeppelin, listening to his dad's record collection and working out how to play the songs. Jimmy Page also used a lot of open chord tunings. After all, Daniel has said he doesn't really consider himself a musician and is a very instinctive songwriter. As soon as he works out how something functions, he gets bored and wants to move on. These new tunings were a songwriting challenge for him to wrestle with and they brought out some of the best songs of his career. I said earlier that this album annoyed the new purists and some old fans, despite it still solidly falling into the rock side of things if by now it was more aptly described as art rock. But what really annoyed them was the opening track, Emotion Sickness, a six-minute mini-epic with no real chorus and an extended instrumental middle section that featured piano from Australian pianist David Helfgott. If I had to pick one song off the album which was the essence of this album, it would be Emotion Sickness. To me, that's the song that I'm most proud of since I've been writing songs. So to have... Someone like David Health got play on it. It was just like, I was like a dream. We deliberately put it as first track on the album so people expect the first song to be some big techno remix hardcore thing. And they hear this manic orchestral piece, they'll just be like, oh, okay, cool. <laughs> if Tomorrow had set the template for Silverchair's early career and Freak built on top of that, Emotion Sickness reset things for the band. Without Emotion Sickness as an opening track, 
this album might not cohere as well as it does. It also became the band's go-to opener when they played live. It's just such a great mood setter. In addition, it drew a line of demarcation in the sand. This is us now. You're either with us or you can fuck off and listen to the first two albums, which some fans did. Of course, this set up the classic situation where they were accused of selling out or going soft on each subsequent album. You know, this new one is crap. You should go back to the sound you had on your last album, which I also originally hated. Emotion Sickness opens with these chord stabs that are both bold and elusive. The way the guitar part is written is almost designed that way. You're playing all these open strings and the chord changes are coming from just changing a note or two each time. Emotion Sickness is written in open C-sharp minor tuning. That means that when you just play the strings of the guitar with no fingers on the frets, the open strings make a C-sharp minor or D-flat minor chord. Like I mentioned before, using odd tunings, Daniel could play fairly simple chord shapes to create something that sounded lush and beautiful without A, having the training, and B, having to shred the instrument. In a recent video by Rick Beato, and if you're interested in rock music analysis like I attempt here, I definitely recommend his YouTube channel, he talks about Joni Mitchell's use of open chord tunings, and he notes that with this kind of tuning, you can create sounds that wouldn't even be possible in standard tuning. Daniel, whether he knew it or not, was capitalizing on this idea. Also, and this might be a side note, but the ability to even have multiple guitars in multiple tunings does require a level of success. I feel like bands on their early albums use far fewer non-standard tunings because it's too annoying to keep changing while rehearsing or playing live when you only have a couple of guitars. The ability to keep around various guitars in different tunings means you have, for example, enough guitars to have, you know, one in standard tuning, one in open C-sharp 5, one in A-flat sus 2, etc. So anyway, Emotion Sickness has that elusive guitar arrangement, but then what's built up around that is this epic film score-esque piece with strings arranged by Jane Scarpantoni and a piano part written by Larry Mulbrecht for David Helfgott. Larry was an arranger and pianist who had worked with Ray Charles, Dean Martin, and Elvis Presley. I have to credit Nick Launay again here. When Daniel had an idea, Launay had the contact, or at least the means, to get in touch with the right collaborators. My favorite part of the piano arrangement is this part in the middle section where the piano goes dissonant against the arrangement. So good. Across the whole album, the way the band arrangements and orchestrations build upon those spacious guitar parts works really well. And I do wonder whether Daniel planned it that way and deliberately made his guitar parts less filling or wall-to-wall as they usually were on the first two albums, because he knew he was going to be adding piano and strings and whatever else on top to fill out the sound. It's a really good musical instinct to write this way. So often when rock bands play with strings or an orchestra, it sounds overblown, like they weren't thinking where the other instruments were going to go. Especially with brass, when that fat sound meets a distorted guitar, it can easily just sound muddy. Now there's actually no horns on Neon Ballroom, again we'll have to wait for Diorama for that, but my point stands, there's none of that overblown muddiness on Neon Ballroom, and there wouldn't be any on Diorama either. And of course, the selling point of Emotion Sickness, at least initially, was that it featured the piano of eccentric Australian pianist David Helfgott, the subject of the Oscar award-winning film Shine. Once we got 
David Health got confirmed, we kind of thought we can really make it special and get special talented people to play on our album rather than just get anyone. It was very, uh, it was very full on for the first five minutes and then it was just like, oh yeah, that's just David. Apparently a suggestion of manager John Watson, David Helfgott fits a motion sickness like a glove. His playing is erratic and beautiful at the same time, playing off Daniel's vocals and the rest of the orchestration really well. Obviously the piano part was also written that way by Larry Mulbrook, so massive respect to him for that piano part. It really fills out the arrangement, and as I've mentioned, it seems like Daniel designed it that way. That was I was having a meeting with a guy called Larry who, um, who actually wrote David's part. I was telling him the style of the part that I wanted, a very kind of manic, discordant, unsettling piano part. Mm. So it kind of clashed with the, the f full kind of beauty of the strings. Um, and we had a short list of people and David Helfgott just seemed perfect for that part because he already played with that style. On emotion sickness, there is an immediate feeling, at least to me, that Daniel has leveled up in songwriting and especially in lyric writing. Daniel has said the song is about, quote, any kind of mental disorder or problem, about depression or anxiety. It's about trying to escape it without resorting to an antidepressant or some form of pill. What stands out on Neon Borum overall, and emotion sickness specifically, isn't just the stylistic music shifts, but the despair in the lyrics and the vocal delivery. Daniel was depressed for real this time. He was no longer writing songs about a documentary he saw once. He was dredging his very soul. Some of the lyrics are a little clunky still, an addict with no heroin, heroin with an E, that is. However, this is a line that Daniel reused almost wholesale in straight lines, so he must have been very fond of it. But other lyrics, though vague, evoke something dark and mysterious. Good things will pass. It helps with excess access. Lessons learned. An interesting thing about Emotion Sickness is that it's one of the few Silverchair songs that doesn't rely on the vocal melody to carry the song. At least that's how I feel. However, it does lose something when the vocal's not there. For example, when Silverchair would play it live, Daniel sometimes wouldn't sing all the parts. For example, in the get up, get up part, live he would often just scream instead. To me, this kind of made the song lose something because bringing in that opening theme, that big riff, again on the final word, it's like a statement of purpose. It's almost like a classical thematic compositional thing. By not singing that part, it becomes a little formless. Also on that, there are conflicting reports about what the lyric is there. In the CD booklet, as you might know, that line does not appear. And forever I thought it was, won't you stop my world? But then all the lyric sites on the internet claim it's, won't you stop my pain? But here's a twist. In the official guitar tablature book, 
it says the line is, won't you starve my brain, which I couldn't hear at all. However, there's a rare video from a gig at Rockfest Atlanta, Georgia, USA, where it does sound like that's what he's saying, starve my brain. He must have stopped singing that line live not too long after that, though. So maybe we'll never have true confirmation. Emotion sickness is where Daniel's musical ambition and newly found lyrical ambition had matured to the point where you had to take notice. All those critics who are waiting to hear Silverchair grow up finally had to put up or shut up. first single and the first song recognizable as being from the silver chair of Frog Stomp and Freak Show that people had become used to, Anthem for the year 2000 was an attempt at placating old fans with a hard rock song and also enticing them to hear some of the new sounds Neon Ballroom would introduce. For example, the bleeps and bloops that Paul Mack provides on this track. Or does he? According to Nick Launay, a lot of what he calls the Sputnik sounds on the track uh, not Paul Mack, they're guitar experimentations that Nick and Jim Magini did. There's quite a lot of analog effects like that across the album. Apparently some of these sounds were actually taken out for the US release, which is a real pity. So Paul Mack, noted electronic artist though he is, is actually mainly providing the keyboards on this track, not the bleepy bloops. Based on a vivid dream Daniel had where the band was playing a huge stadium and the crowd were clapping their hands in the song's rhythm. Daniel apparently woke up and wrote Anthem for the year 2000 straight away. It was pretty short. I just had a dream and um, the dream was we were playing in a stadium and the PA blew up and the crowd just started clapping their hands and I woke up and kind of, I was inspired to write a kind of big anthemic stadium rock song. When we play Wembley and stuff like that? Uh, for when we headline Wembley Stadium. <laughs> it's basically just about the youth being in control of their own minds mm-hmm. and young people not being controlled by political parties or being told to conform by school teachers or whatever. It's just mm. about the kind of youth against establishment traditional rock song. the chorus is meant to be sarcastic saying to the politicians etc that oh you don't like what we're doing well we'll make it up to you in the year 2000 anthem for the year 2000 is the one song on the album i've always struggled with i I didn't love it when it was first released as a single i thought the lyrics and messaging were a bit naive by then i was listening to more actual political music and by comparison the song sounded facile political mode was not the best one for sewer chair I also remember that my mum, a singing teacher, wondered why Daniel was singing flat in the song. I don't know if that's quite true on re-listen, but it does come from the pre-autotune era where your performance was your performance, pretty much. Musically, it's nowhere near as deep or rich as some of the other songs on Neon Ballroom. 
Daniel has said it took him 30 seconds to write and, well, it does kind of sound like it. I still do think that in terms of the rest of the album, it doesn't quite fit thematically, but it has some things I like. It has a cool little thing in the riff that I like, where it kind of implies the suspended second halfway through the main riff. So in drop D, he's playing an F power chord, but then the next chord he goes to is a, a C power chord. But the tonality coming from the F makes that high G in the C chord sound like there's a sus2 going on, giving it that uneasy feeling. That's what I hear anyway, at least when I play it. And um, yeah, we got Newcastle, no, New South Wales School Choir or yeah. something, which is really good to have. Very Pink Floyd, but sounds good. Getting the school choir, the New South Wales public school singers, into sing on the chorus is interesting. Um, I'm not sure how successful it is. In fact, I think it's pretty buried in the mix. But having said that, Anthem for the Year 2000 was one of the two songs that Kevin Caveman Shirley ended up mixing for the final album, so maybe he, having a more hard rock background, turned the faders down on the choir. This was the guy who produced Frog Stomp, after all. Or maybe it's just that the band's original idea to go full Another Brick in the Wall Part 2 didn't pan out like they hoped. I have softened on the song over the years. I think as a populist rock song to get a full stadium of people on their feet and clapping, you do have to be quite vague in your message. We'd finished recording, it's like, yes, we're finished recording, we're out of the studio. It's like... Daniel just came in and said, yeah, I've got another song if, we, if you want to try it. I was like, oh. And I heard it, I was like, oh, this will be all right. We only rehearsed it a few times and then we went in the studio and recorded it. Please die. Late in the recording sessions for Neon Ballroom, in fact so late that Ben and Chris thought they were done, Daniel tentatively revealed that he actually had another full song. Just like it happened with Cemetery on Freak Show, it was a song Daniel hadn't necessarily intended for Silverchair, a secret track in Daniel's head. In the Inside the Neon Ballroom video special directed by Robert Hambling, which was released on VHS and also on some limited versions of the CD as CD-ROM content, there's actually footage of manager John Watson talking to Daniel and Nick Lornay about scheduling and getting things done on time. Somehow Watson brings up whether there's an unfinished song somewhere, and Daniel says, oh, I've got a full song ready. Once Watson, who, remember, was originally Silverchair's A&R man, heard the song, he knew it was a hit, or at least an ideal single. But he knew that the lyrics, which all but explicitly detailed Daniel's anorexia, were serving Daniel up to a rabid media on a silver platter. He knew it was the exact wrong kind of attention the band needed, especially with Daniel in such a fragile state. Watson called John O'Donnell, the head of Murma, who I don't think I've mentioned much on this podcast, but he, along with Watson, was instrumental in signing Silverchair back in 1994. O'Donnell agreed that the media would have a field day and it would be best to leave the song off the album. But Daniel was adamant. He wanted to be a truthful songwriter and didn't want to censor himself in any way. So they recorded the song, Come What May. Despite all that, I feel like a lot of people still did miss what the song was about, despite it not being subtle about it. Journalists were constantly asking Daniel if Anna was a real person, 
even at the time, it was clear to me, a 15-year-old, that Anna just meant anorexia. It's right there in the text. You don't need to analyze it that much further. But Daniel would play along saying that Anna is a composite of people with eating disorders. But if that were the case, what do you make of the line, please die, Anna, and Anna wrecks your life? He's not talking about a group of people with a disease. He's talking about the disease. It's a composite of people. It's a group of people with eating disorders. I've always just written songs according to how I felt and just wrote exactly what I felt. I've never really compromised any of my integrity for the sake of not being so targeted by a certain group of people. So that song, I was kind of warned by people that, you know, this could be a mistake lyrically, but I've never really compromised and I'm not prepared to do it on this song either and I think it'll help people more than people realise. The song itself is quite beautiful. Simple chords with a fairly direct lyric despite some people's apparent confusion. The real coup de grace of the song is how it modulates between the keys E-flat in the verses and E-major for the choruses. It's like the song keeps levelling up and down, keeping you guessing. It's one of those things that rock music can do really well because of how it uses power chords, which don't fall into a major or minor tonality. So in Anna's song, he's using suspended chords in a major key framework, but he's actually creating a minor or sad feeling in the verses. But the key change is actually technically just going from one major key to another. And then that climactic bridge when it comes to the and you're my obsession part is just a really strong piece of songwriting to me. That whole song has been building to this moment and it peaks and then falls going from, to use the musical terms, fortissimo to pianissimo, very loud to very soft in a moment, which then lets the song build back up to that final chorus. It's brilliant, actually. Also, remember when I talked about the cool power chords that Daniel used in Tomorrow that adds the lower fourth in the bass? They're all over this song too. He was taking tools he already had and using them for greater ends. That's kind of the secret of Neon Ballroom. It's only just a few small leaps ahead of Freak Show, but all those small bits add up to create such a huge impression. The late 90s was a time of mashing up hard rock and electronica, and Silverchair had already had experience with it, contributing the song Spawn to the Spawn film soundtrack. As you probably know, the song Spawn Again on this album is a rewrite of that song. And it's also the last time Ben Gillies would have a writing credit on a Silverchair album. The idea behind the entire Spawn soundtrack, which was a superhero movie back before there were good ones, was that it would pair rock bands with electronic artists. 
Probably the one song that's still remembered from this experiment is Filter and the Crystal Methods Can't You Trip Like I Do. Anyway, the process of recording the Spawn soundtrack version involves Silverchair submitting the song and an executive producer handing that track to electronic artist Vitro, who essentially remixed the song. Evidently, Silverchair thought the song deserved better and revived it for Neon Ballroom. As I said before, this is one of the most metal songs Silverchair ever did. Based around a heavy riff that prominently features the tritone interval that I talked about in the Freak Show episode, Ben Gillies said that Spawn Again in part reminded him of Sepultura. Spawn Again also saw Daniel trying out some new vocal techniques, except this time, rather than the new approach making the song more beautiful, these made the song more frightening and dark. The lyrics for Spawn Again are straight from the hardcore vegan pamphlet Talking Points, and it's a much better political lyric than Anthem for the year 2000. Where that song was vague, Spawn Again is specific. And again, with this new style of lyrics, if the words weren't always good, they were always interesting. Bring on the ape farm, demolish the monkeys, drink up, drink up, look down on junkies. It's amazing. Spawn Again is another road not taken version of Silverchair. In retrospect, you can see how Neon Ballroom splits the difference between the old hard rock style of Silverchair and this new orchestrated art rock that the band would pursue going forward. The beauty of Neon Ballroom, though, is that neither of those styles get short shrift. You never get the feeling that anything on this album is done in half measures. You want gorgeous lush strings and agonized confessional lyrics? Here you go. You want balls to the wall hard rock, complete with screamed vocals? Here you go. Neither of those was a bone thrown to a section of their audience. That whole song is about anti-animal experimentation and it's, I think that's probably the heaviest song we've ever really done in terms of music. Um, yeah, there's some really cool sound effects on that song which were really good because we originally did that song, um, a demo version, then it got remixed and... Yeah, we decided to do another version of it again because we really liked the song, but it had never been on an album because we thought the song was so good it was kind of wasted just to be on soundtracks. Daniel was smart when showing his bandmates the new material that would become Neon Ballroom. He didn't just launch straight into emotion sickness as the first thing he played them. He eased Chris and Ben into things by showing them Dearest Helpless first, an off-kilter but still fairly normal rock song. When I wrote this bunch of songs and came to present them to Ben and Chris, um, I think that was one of the first ones I showed them because I thought they would really dig it because it was really heavy and hard, but it was also a lot different to any of the heavy stuff we'd done before that. And I remember showing Ben and Chris, and they just looked at me and Ben's like, that's pretty weird, man. Well, weird or not, the song gives ample room for Ben to do some excellent tom work, a beat that drives the song, 
In fact, it seems almost built on Ben's Tom pattern. I even wonder if it was influenced by Marilyn Manson's The Beautiful People, which would have been a hit around the time. It has some cool little loud soft and stop start dynamic things happening. And I love the bonkers middle section, which goes into 6-8 time and it has these woodwind trills. I'm not sure if that's a sample or actual woodwinds. There's no woodwind credits in the liner notes, so I assume it was one of Nick Lornay's tape loop samples. So by now you probably know my contention that Silverchair were never directly influenced by the grunge scene, and especially not by Nirvana. I think calling them a grunge band is inaccurate just by geography, but also inaccurate by sound. But if I was going to concede that Silverchair might sound a little like Nirvana, it would be on this track, which almost sounds like something that might have appeared on In Utero. Once people get too involved in the whole rock and roll lifestyle, a lot of people tend to forget about, you know, the the nine-to-five world out there, which isn't bad or good. It's just something that happens, and a lot of people get so consumed in the whole rock and roll thing, they forget that there's a whole other world out there which really doesn't care about music at all. Lyrically, Dearest Helpless touches on themes of the rock and roll lifestyle, Sex, drugs, and image is just enough to get you by in the real world. But the rest of the lyrics really seem, again, to be about an interpersonal relationship. He's made you blind, you're better on your own, I'm just that kind to bring you down. In fact, in this context, the line about the rock and roll lifestyle might just as easily be referring to the narrator himself. Vocal melody incorporates some nice little accidental or chromatic notes that helps it stand out against the riff underneath. It's not so far removed from what Daniel was doing in the vocal melody on Learn to Hate from Freak Show, which I talked about in that episode. Having said that though, the vocal melody actually does follow the root notes of its chords in the verse, but because the riff or the chord progression underneath sounds so weird and angular, it doesn't come off as redundant. That's partly because the verse chord progression, as well as the main riff to the song, utilize tritones, like I talked about with Slave. In fact, the verse riff is really simple, but it alternates these power chords with diminished chord fragments, which is where the tritone comes in. Except this time, it's not to make the song sound dark or heavy, it's to create a strange dissonant feeling that really reflects the themes of the album. other reason it works to me is because the way it's played on guitar, those chord fragments are all played with the open D string, which creates kind of a pedal tone feel, which I'll talk about more when I get to diorama. It's also something Adam Jones from Tool does in his playing, and we know that Daniel was a big Tool fan at the time. Ben and Chris are really, they tap in really quickly. 
So if I say this is the kind of thing that would be really cool, they're like, yeah, totally. And they can just do it. We have to give Ben and Chris absolute respect for stepping up when Daniel brought them more complicated songs. And this is not damning them with faint praise. All that touring and studio experience, all that extra time playing together had them playing as a well-oiled three-piece. They had all improved their chops. And although I don't really know what music they were listening to, you have to assume their own musical horizons were expanding as well. You can be the visionary genius all you want, but if your band can't play what you want them to or what you hear in your head, the music coming out the other end isn't going to be as great. Trust me, I've been in bands where I couldn't get the other members to play what I heard in my head, and on the other side, I've been the person who couldn't play what the band I was in wanted me to. There's an interesting tension in some of the songs on Neon Ballroom. For many of the songs, Chris and Ben are a really tight rhythm section that are still very much playing in the style of a hard rock band. But what they're backing are these new songs Daniel has written to take Silverchair in a different direction. I don't know whether this was on purpose or an interesting accident, but at times it feels like Ben, for example, was drumming to a much heavier guitar track, which then got removed in the final mix, leaving these massive hard-hitting beats against these quite lush songs. This isn't even a criticism. Like I said, it's a really cool and interesting tension. And what it does is foreshadow when the distorted guitars do come back into a song, keeping a nice thread to help bind the songs together and maintain consistency in an album that's very experimental from one track to the next. I feel like you can hear this in Dearest Helpless, Miss You Love, Anna's Song, Black Tangled Heart. It's a really present thing to me. And it gives a sense of continuity in the rhythm section. It makes me wonder if it's Ben and Chris playing the same as always, but Daniel's more sparse guitar arrangements just make them sound bigger than they did, or is it Ben and to a lesser extent Chris's interpretation of what they hear in the music? It might not be as sonically heavy, but it's more emotionally heavy, devastatingly so, and so they play the feeling. Miss You Love is another one of those deceptively simple songs. It uses very simple chords, it's in E standard tuning, using very standard chord voicings, but it implies complexity through the arrangement and the structure. What perhaps gives Miss You Love its off-kilter feel is that it's in 6-8 time, giving it that rolling waltz kind of feel. And those understated but integral keyboards by Robert Wolfe and Midnight Oil's Jim Magini. Also, those jabs of heavy rock and the breakdown are just enough to stop it becoming another ballad, and it tips the listener off that maybe Daniel isn't quite being so straight with the lyrics. I think Miss You Love is a set of very strong lyrics, which Daniel claims he wrote to be misinterpreted. I originally wrote it to be misinterpreted. It was a deliberate thing. A lot of people think it's a love song, but it's actually about not having love, and that's why it says Miss You Love. And when people hear it on the radio, they'll probably think, yeah, that's a love song. But once they read the lyrics, they'll realise that it's really an anti-love song written to be interpreted as a love song so it can appeal to more people. Lyrically, you can see how Daniel wanted to play with the idea of a love song that sounds pretty but is also saying some darker things. He also told Kerrang! magazine about the song 
We've got girls screaming and stuff, girls saying they love us, but I think they're in love with the idea of being in love with someone on stage or in love with people they see in magazines or on television. That's not real. It's totally false. You can see in that quote, I guess, ambivalence to certain segments of the fan base. Subaceer has always struck me as a band that appreciated its fan base rather than loved it. You know, a band like My Chemical Romance, say, has or had a dedicated and rabid fan base, but the band itself always seemed like they loved their fans right back. And maybe that's from being a more underground band and having longtime fans that grew as they got more popular. Silverchair's first recording went four times platinum. It was hard to tell who the real fans were and who the teeny boppers were. The ones who cared about the music versus the ones who would scream, I love you, over that music to the band members they'd never even met. And of course, this is the song that contains the line, I love the way you love, but I hate the way I'm supposed to love you back. Make room for the prey, cause I'm coming in with what I want to say, but it's gonna hurt, and I love the pain, a breeding ground for hate, but I'm not, not sure, not too sure how it feels to handle every day. Dad's like this huge Neil Young fan, and I remember I was showing him a demo of one of my songs, and Dad's like, "You know what, man? You need a song with a guitar solo." And I was really bored, and I, yeah, okay. I went up to my room, I wrote this song, and then I put a guitar solo on it. All right, Dad, I wrote your song. <laughs> and I put a guitar solo on it, and that was it. And the guitar solo is just, I don't know, dedicated to Greg. Yeah, he was like, yeah, that's it. That's, that's the spirit. <laughs> Apparently written for Daniel's dad, Do You Feel the Same is one of the more understated songs on Neon Ballroom, but it's also one of the more underrated. The entire song is basically built on that A minor to F progression, which is used in both the verse and the chorus. Then it goes to this bridge that has that beautiful bright G major progression that goes from G major to F to F sus to C, and then the second time it lands on the A minor 7, which makes a really nice harmony with the vocal melody there. And then, for the chorus, it goes back to that AF. It's a super simple musical trick, but it works. Lyrically, and this is true on much of Neon Ballroom, the lyrics are specific, but are still opaque, which great lyrics often are. They bring to mind things without revealing what they mean. And overall, the songs on Neon Ballroom 
do evoke feelings of loneliness and unrequited love. And do you feel the same is one place I hear that for sure. Could I be read if I was see-through or would you just read my spine is a line I really like. It's funny, I sort of used to classify this song and Dearest Helpless almost as filler tracks on this album. Not quite, I liked them, but I didn't think they held up to the rest of the album, maybe because by comparison, they're quite similar. And I think one of Neon Borum's biggest strengths is that really no two songs sound the same. But listening again for this episode, I started to really like these songs again on their own terms and see them or hear them as clever, slightly sideways pieces of rock music. And that guitar solo he wrote for his dad very tasteful. The effects on the solo are just weird enough to make it work as an experiment, but the playing's never obscured. And I love how that repeating phrase at the end continues as he goes into the final chorus. Black Tangled Heart is another deceptively simple song. Again, in standard tuning, Black Tangled Heart's vocal melody uses mostly chord tones, that is, notes that are in the chords underneath it, but does some really clever things with harmony, especially when it comes to the interplay between the vocal melody and the arrangement around it. For example, this part where Jane Scampantoni's string quartet seems to be responding to the vocals. When Daniel performed this song live, he would even sing along with that part because it just works so well with the written vocal melody. I also love the guitar part to this song with its beautiful intro and chorus progression doubled with a harp in the intro, giving this song a really lush sound. And the keyboard part from Chris Abrams really elevates it as well. I also love the progression in the verse part, which is built around a C major figure that kind of walks the bass note back and forth with each phrase ending on the E minor, which ties the verses into the choruses, which also end on an E minor. Again, it's an example of Daniel seeming to know exactly where he wanted the extra instruments to be and knowing how sparse to make the guitar parts. describe that song. I suppose that it follows the same kind of lyrical idea to Miss You Love, but it's a lot more it's a lot more down. It's about just feeling like everything's collapsing on you because you don't have anyone to really love. 
So it's and that's why it's got the manic explosions of distorted noise. It's just it's all contained, and then all of a sudden anger comes out for six bars or whatever. We just wanted to make parts really pretty and other parts really ugly. Lyrically, the song is quite dark. As you heard, Daniel talks about it being about containment and explosion. And this is reflected in the song musically, where you have the distorted guitars segueing into the pretty melody in the interlude. This is Daniel finally making the music reflect the lyrics and themes rather than the other way around. She would do it right because she was just so good last yeah. time. And then I just went into her hotel room with Nick and she just played some of the, th- the string arrangements on the keyboard and we changed a few minor things and then that was it. Then we were recording it. There's something to be said for someone without formal training to have the musical instinct that Daniel Johns did to know exactly what he wanted to hear in each song, in each arrangement. There's a memorable piece of footage from the Neon Ballroom recording sessions, faithfully captured by Robert Hambling, where Daniel talks to the cellist and arranger Jane about how he wants the strings to sound. The strings there, you know, they're really sharp. Yeah. I don't know if it's just the left. You mean like, da da da, ba da ba, ba da bee, ba da No, you mean just the long chord, you mean the chorus or not? No, the whole entire thing is really sharp at the moment. Should be a bit. Uh, a bit more legato. Uh, yeah, throughout more legato. the whole song, or just in, in, those, <laughs> in those bits. Even though he doesn't understand what the word legato means, he perfectly describes what he wants the strings to be doing with his hand motions. I found it interesting that in his 2018 Andrew Denton interview, Daniel talks about how he wants music to be magic, and as soon as he starts to understand something, he wants to change what he's doing which is as good an explanation for the direction Daniel's music has gone in on each subsequent album as you're ever going to get. None of them are the same, and each take things off onto a strange new tangent. Why not keep doing the same thing? As he says in the interview, because it's art, and art is limitless. And I believe that whole process started here during Neon Ballroom. Is there a part of you actually likes to confound your audience? Um... mm. Yeah. Why is that? Um, because it's art and it's, it's supposed to be limitless and it is, it is the only thing that represents freedom for me. It's the only time where I can be anything that I want and, um, you know, I obviously don't want to offend people, but if I do, it's not, it's not that bad.
However, of course, we have to give a lot of respect and acknowledgement to the arrangers working with the band on Neon Ballroom. Larry and Jane were able to take Daniel's vague or at least not directly musical ideas, colour, feelings, images, and translate them with Daniel's oversight into something that was as close an approximation to what was in Daniel's head as possible. Elsewhere, Jim Magini of Midnight Oil and of course Paul Mack added their keyboard and electronic brilliance to things. Paul Mack, as you might know, despite being known for his dance music and memorably thanked all the ecstasy dealers in Sydney when he won an ARIA award in 1995, incidentally the year that Silverchair broke through, was actually a trained classical pianist who studied at the Sydney Conservatorium of Music, and he was able to bring a musicality to his parts on the album beyond just a few space-age bleeps. With the first album, there was a lot of high singing. And with the second album, I kind of stopped because I didn't feel as masculine. (laughs) But uh, on this album, I kind of realised I'm not a real man, so it's time to go back to what I do. (laughs) I haven't talked much about Daniel's singing style in these episodes, but I think now the Neon Ballroom episode is as good a time as any. As a singer myself, I probably feel most qualified to talk about this than I do other parts of the music. Though vocals are such an elusive and personal thing, especially in popular music, that I'll probably still come off sounding unsure. But anyway, Daniel sounds different on this album. I remember when this came out, a friend of mine told me that you could tell the other members of the band were singing because it just didn't sound like him. She was wrong about the first part, but right about the second part. I've mentioned in past episodes the various levels of affectation his voice had as a teenager, things that didn't help dispel comparisons to Pearl Jam or Nirvana. But Neon Ballroom is him letting go of whatever style he thought he should be singing as the singer in a hard rock band, and instead just being emotionally honest with how he sounded, which is obviously thematic with the album. The result is an honest, at times raw, but always compelling vocal performance that I have to assume gave him more confidence going forwards with the brilliant vocal arrangements he would later perform for Diorama. Neon Ballroom is also the first time falsetto started to play a role in Daniel's singing style. You can hear him experiment with it in emotion sickness. And Anna's song. And now going forward, it would become a major part of how he wrote and performed melodies. In fact, I do wonder whether since he now felt free to sing this way, it further expanded what he could write. Because once you put falsetto into the mix, you can obviously sing higher than your regular chest or head voice. It was a freeing thing. And now he could write vocal melodies that went literally above and beyond how he would ever have sung on the first two albums. The approach then was, if I can't get the notes in the regular rock belt way, I can't sing it. You might even say he ended up relying on falsetto a little too much on later albums, which made some of those songs very difficult to perform live. Because as every singer knows... When you're under the weather or suffering vocal stress, the very first thing to go is your falsetto. But I'll have more to say on that particular issue in future episodes. In fact, Daniel has admitted he was self-conscious about sounding wimpy during Freak Show and deliberately didn't want things to be too melodic. That all changed with Neon Ballroom. Daniel's voice on Neon Ballroom does sound different to anything before or after it. He's still got a lot of rock grit in his voice, even on the soft songs, which, much like the driving rhythm section I mentioned earlier,
gives the album a cohesive sound despite the variety in the songs. It's funny, I remember people saying, both personally and in the media, that Daniel's range had expanded on this album. That's not actually true. Technically, he sings higher notes on Frog Stomp than on Neon Ballroom, but he sounded more mature and more aware, if not more in control, of his instrument. What does stand out about his voice on Neon Ballroom is that Daniel sounds pained, which he would struggle to capture or in fact refuse to capture live or on later albums. I remember in an interview at the time, he talked about performing Neon Ballroom songs during that tour as being very emotionally draining, and that it was like reliving the worst time of his life. That's about um, being in a vulnerable state and then someone taking advantage of you. And musically, I think that's that and Do You Feel the Same would be the straightest rock tracks on the album, but I really like both of them. I would just really like that song because it's so... It's just so simple. It's just a riff and just big sounds. It's just got a good groove. Because so, so much of the album is so complicated and intricate, it's just really good to have, you know, two or three songs where you can say, you know, if you don't want that, you can, you know, we still play rock music. <laughs> Point of View has always been a personal favourite for me. Along with Paint Pastel Princess, it's my favourite track on the album. It's interesting to hear Daniel say in that clip that it's a straight-ahead rock song because I never really thought about it that way. He's right, I guess, and it does make me wonder what the perception of this album would have been if this had been a single. Also, he can say it's simple, but it's written in bloody open A-flat sus2 tuning, and overdubbed on top of that are two other guitars in the same tuning but with the lowest string tuned down to D-flat, technically making it an open D-flat 6-9 tuning. Whew. And those open strings get a workout too. You'd be surprised how often the guitar part in point of view is just on that one chord or parts of it, almost like Daniel was aiming for that droning Beatles quality in songs like Tomorrow Never Knows or Within You Without You. I wish they had played this song more often live. In fact, I'm not sure they ever did pass the Neon Borum tour. The fact that it seems to be the only song in their career in this tuning, it might not have been worth it to have one guitar set up for just one song in the set. Live, I believe, he played this song on the red PRS guitar. Despite its comparatively simple rock structure, Nick Lorne had some production tricks up his sleeve for this one. There are those buzzing parts in the middle section at Pretend the World's an Ocean. And in the final chorus, in the left-hand speaker only, there are these weird horn sounds that are apparently a tape loop of a Mexican band that Jim Magini had run backwards and sped up. That's according to an interview Nick Lune did about this album. I did actually reach out to Nick Lorne via Instagram to confirm with him whether the tape loops he was talking about in that interview were in the middle section of the song or in the final chorus. Now, he didn't get back to me on that specific point, so I'll leave that to the listener to decide. 
But let's just say we have stayed in touch and I might have some Nick Lornay news to report on soon. Tease, tease. Likewise, I have tried to reach out to Kevin Shirley to find out why my Neon Ballroom CD says he only mixed Miss You Love, but sources online say he also mixed Anthem for the year 2000. I thought it might have been a US mix versus an Australian mix thing, but I did want to make sure. At time of recording, though, he hasn't gotten back to me. So I did some detective work and looked at US versions of the album artwork online, and here's what I think happened. The Australian version of the album has a version of Miss You Love mixed by Caveman. The US version of the album has a version of Anthem mixed by Caveman, but not his version of Miss You Love. I don't know why. Anyway, going back to that middle section in point of view, I really like the line, pretend the steak's a cowboy and the kiss will kill you. I have no idea what it means, but it's evocative. That's a huge step up in lyrical expression from the previous albums. And it's another example of Daniel writing a song much like in Anna's song, where it feels like the whole composition is building to one moment. In this case, it's the stakes a cowboy part. I think this kind of composing will really reach its peak with future songs like Tuna in the Brine and Those Thieving Birds' Strange Behaviour. That was definitely the most energetic song when we recorded it. We wanted to just make it sound really messy and live and angry, and we pretty much yeah just did that. And then Paul Mac added some subsonic booms to it, just so it's got it's not so generic. Because we wanted it to be really straightforward punk, just with something a little different in there. Because a lot of a lot of the punk community don't like to hear things different. Not dissimilar from the other punk songs they'd done, in fact I have heard it was originally written for Freak Show, Satin Sheets could have been a throwaway rocker for the album. If it was written for Freak Show, it had a bit of a neon ballroom makeover, with Paul Mack's so-called subsonic booms giving it colour and keeping it from being generic. However, Ben's drumming is the standout here, driving the song and making it something really propulsive. And that breakdown section before Daniel goes crazy with the final chorus is a killer. Daniel experiments with his voice in the final chorus, howling like he really wouldn't do again except when singing Freak Live. With lyrics that allude to inequality and hypocrisy, this is Silverchair in political mode again, but I think with a bit more success. It's a lot closer to a Black Flag-style socio-political lyric than the platitudes of Anthem. But Satin Sheets wasn't a massive hit, now was it? best thing this song does when you listen to the album from start to finish is the way this song ends and juts up against the next track, Paint Pastel Princess.
On Neon Ballroom, even when Daniel was using chord tones in the vocal melody, which happens more often than you might think listening to this album, the harmonies built up around it make everything seem richer. Again, this was one of the virtues of those open chord tunings. Nowhere is this more true than on Paint Pastel Princess. In fact, the guitar line directly follows the vocal melody at times in this song, and rather than making it sound messy or redundant, it actually deepens it. Daniel similarly pulled this trick off elsewhere on the album, such as in Anna's song and Dearest Helpless. Paint Pastel Princess is in open C-sharp 5 tuning, so essentially an open C-sharp power chord. I love this song a lot. Jane Scarp and Tony's arrangement of strings in this song is absolutely brilliant too. They're the star of the song. Building off the chords Daniel has built for the main refrain, the but it's all the same to me part, she comes up with these beautiful counter melodies that interact with the guitar parts and even work rhythmically so that you can feel that she's really thought about how the strings will work against Ben and Chris's parts too. I've also always loved the breakdown section that Ben and Chris drive towards the end of the song. In fact, I've used it in the intro to this podcast even. I really like the strings on that song. I, that's that's the whole beauty of the way Jane writes strings. She actually adds to the performance of the band rather than takes over, rather than puts this lush thing over the whole thing. There's little crazy explosions here and there, which is really good. Lyrically, this song is at least partly about being on antidepressants. The drug Arapax gets a name check in the punny line Bow and Arapax, and how those drugs even out your emotions so that you don't feel the lows, but you also don't feel the highs either. Hence the refrain, but it's all the same to me. Of course, going with the premise that this album's lyrics tend to also be about loneliness and love, the lyrics to Paint Pastel Princess work in this way too. Paint Pastel Princess, Bow and Arapax, basically a double pun that leads into the line, packs the shelves when they're broken, I'll beg you, beg you. And who shoots a bow and arrow? Cupid. That's how I always heard the lyrics as a 15-year-old. Someone who wants love but knows that if he can't have it, soon enough his reliance on antidepressants will even out his emotions and it will be all the same to him. It's all a These lyrics, again, show way more sophistication than we'd previously seen from Daniel. That opening verse that rhymes mean left with mean theft, and then the double rhyme mean left being left, is such a step up from not to imitate, but to irritate all the ones who hate. Although another departure for the band from a stylistic standpoint, Steam Will Rise gives the rhythm section and Chris in particular their moment to shine. 
It really goes to show how strong Chris and Ben were as a unit and how important they are to the sound of Silverchair. To me, this song sounds like Silverchair even before the guitar and vocals come in. The rhythm track's very 80s, but not in that 80s mainstream way. It just, it's just got them really big reverberated drum sounds that a lot of them 80s records have got. The demo of that song is just very quiet and mellow and we just wanted to do something different with it for the actual album version. So it's got the really quiet melodies over it, but these huge drum sounds crashing out of the top. That song's about being contained through violence, um, being scared to be yourself because you don't want to get you know, attacked. So that whole song's about people punishing your self-esteem and just making you scared to be yourself and fighting against it. Lyrically, the song is almost a pep talk about trying to find a piece of yourself and that self-esteem will rise. Again, Daniel's new love of puns coming through here, using the idea of steam and self-esteem both being things that can rise. This song is one of the few times on the album where Daniel's voice really is multi-tracked, culminating in that beautiful harmonised ending. Maybe that one section of this song is what inspired his future love of building up choirs of harmonies out of his voice, though it's quite concise and simple compared to what he would do on Diorama. There's some more cool production from Nick Launay on this track as well. During that middle section with the drum fills, there's a chiming bell sample that's been sped up to create that eerie spinning kind of sound. sure people will want me to mention that the dog you might hear in the middle section of the track is Daniel's dog Sweep, who even gets a credit in the liner notes. Nick Lone mixed Neon Ballroom, yes, he actually got to mix an album he produced for Silverchair, at LA's Larrabee North Studios on an SSLJ series, an analogue mixing desk. Whether the idea came from Nick or Daniel is not clear, but mixing on an analogue desk became an important thing for this album. I clearly remember Daniel being interviewed about this album and saying that there weren't many analogue desks left in Australia, and because of the warm sound he was going for, it would be self-defeating to mix it on a digital desk. Now, I'm not entirely sure if that was true in 1999, audiophile historians hit me up, but the mix definitely benefits from that warmth. Nick Lone himself being a big proponent of the analogue recording and mixing process must have been a big influence on Daniel's sense of needing that warm sound. It was a, Nick actually said to us that the only, the only reason that um, he, he actually said that he wanted to mix it overseas and we were like, we were kind of against it, and he said... Um, it was because they had some special like mixing desk over mm. there that was better that they didn't have in Australia and it just made it sound that little bit better. It was so. like a digit. there's all the, almost the desks in Australia are digital desks mm -hmm. and because the 
theme of the album was so kind of traditional and very warm sounding mm. to go against it at the end and mix it on a digital desk would have been disastrous so we had to go over to LA just to get that analog desk and get a very warm sound. Having said all that, I do wonder whether Neon Borum is considered one of the victims of the loudness war, which was the tendency over the past 20 years or so to increase the volume or the loudness at the end of the mastering process by compressing the sound, resulting in less dynamic range and audible distortion. Pulling the album's tracks into this podcast and seeing the waveforms, the songs do look quite brick-walled, but I don't really hear any clipping in the songs, and I'm using my original CD for the tracks you're hearing. Maybe the analog mixing process reduced this tendency? I really don't know. It's just something I noticed. This is another thing I'm not really qualified to speak about, so any audiophiles out there, let me know. Neon Ballroom was released March 8, 1999 in Australia and March 16th in North America. In Australia, Neon Ballroom was a hit, going three times platinum and hitting number one on the ARIA chart. It was number eight in New Zealand and in Germany, it reached number 13. In Canada, it went to number five on the Canadian Billboard chart, but in the States, where they had broken through with Frogstomp and had decent success with Freak Show, it only got as far as 50 on the Billboard 200. It did eventually get to platinum there, 1 million sales, actually slightly outselling Freak Show, but it wasn't a patch on Frogstomp's 2 million sales. In the UK, Neon Borum reached 29 on the UK album's OCC chart and reached 23 on the French chart. Actually, internationally, Neon Borum did pretty well commercially, outselling Freak Show in places such as Germany, Sweden, and Brazil. Contemporary reviews were divided, and it really came down to where you lived in the world. Rolling Stone in the US, who had given Frogstomp such a good review, were lukewarm. This is the opening line from their review. When Silverchair wrap up their mopey opening track with the words, Lessons Learned, it's hard to suppress a sigh at the overt lyrical reference to Kurt Cobain's Dumb. Are you fucking kidding me? Still with the Nirvana references. Listen, I love Nirvana, but Emotion Sickness does not reference Nirvana's song Dumb in any way. The term lessons learned is a common phrase in the English language. I hope the writer, Neva Shonen, didn't break her back stretching for that reference. Elsewhere in this Rolling Stone review, she called the band Australia's answer to Nirvana and kids that can't decide what to do when they grow up obviously mistaking the musical experimentation and sophistication for being unfocused. That's just lazy writing. I know it's been 21 years, but I am calling bullshit on this review. Back at home, the reviews were mostly positive, particularly noting Daniel's growing songwriting skills. Sean Carney, writing in The Green Guide, called it an expression of Daniel Johns's emerging artistic vision. Craig Matheson in Australian Rolling Stone called it a sustained adult work, and that Silverchair are experimenting and the results are awesome. New Zealand's Rip It Up magazine called Emotion Sickness in particular a grandiose bouquet of subtle elegance. And it did also win Nick Launay an ARIA award for best engineering. The winner is Nick Launay! Nick couldn't make it tonight, so accepting the award is Daniel Johns from Silverchair. Hi. Just wait, um, Nick, what? Nick is in, um, he's away making a Venezuelan porn film, so. I do have to say, looking through the contemporary reviews, the response was a little more muted than I remember. As I've mentioned, it's hard to find enough 20-year-old album reviews to get a proper gauge of the cultural moment, 
but my impression back then was that Silverchair was getting treated as serious artists, not least because they had the formidable music guru Molly Meldrum in their corner praising the work on Channel V. To say congratulations on the album is an understatement, to be quite honest. Um, it's, it's blown me out. Um, it's a very, very impressive album. Uh, it really is. I mean, it, it's, it's something that it's hard to imagine. I mean, I actually was very surprised, you know, with, the, with your progression in the second album. Um, and it's hard to think that and in 95 that you, you know, your whole career started, but it's a good album. Um, it's funny, even Jeff Apter, who has written two books about Silverchair and Daniel Johns, seems to equivocate on Neon Ballroom. In his A New Tomorrow biography, he says Daniel was paying lip service to the quote mosh pit on some of the songs, and that the album was something of a half measure with both killer and filler. Well, I respectfully disagree with old mate Jeff, whose work has admittedly been an invaluable help in my research. I might have mentioned this, but there is something of a generational divide, where older Gen Xs, those being the powerful music writers at the time, just could not help but see Silverchair as a bunch of kids. It really took the younger generation to rewrite the narrative on Silverchair. In a retrospective review for the album's 20th anniversary in 2019, Junkies David James Young called it a vital album and said, It's not the sound of a band aping its heroes, it's the sound of a band shedding its skin, an ugly but nonetheless necessary process of evolution. In addition, Young said, Consider that when a lot of the criticisms were made about Neon Ballroom, it was from the viewpoint of being the most recent studio album for a still active band. I feel that's a very good point about this album. It just took time to get its hooks into people, and in some countries, they just weren't around long enough for that to happen. As for the contemporary reviews, it does take time to let the album fully envelop you, and I know that the tight deadlines for music critics can often mean reviews of half-formed thoughts that don't really stand up to scrutiny. Hello, US Rolling Stone. When I used to write album reviews, I can think of a few specific times I gave bad or lukewarm reviews to albums I ended up with more listens loving. Of course, reviews aside, the main thing in the media at the time was Daniel's story of depression, paranoia, anxiety, and anorexia. There's a famous profile he did for Australian Rolling Stone, written by Alyssa Blake, on the eve of their Australian tour, which is basically where he revealed all these issues. That profile is such a huge thing in my mind from the time. It just colours everything about the album for me. The whole eating disorder thing was such a... such a strange, strange thing to happen to you, when, especially if you're a male. And, you know, I was from about 16 to about 20 years old. I was pretty sick and went in and out of being really bad to kind of all right, but never really good. I think that it was definitely a control thing. A lot of, a lot of what started me not eating was when I started getting beaten up a lot after school by people that weren't in the school. They used to follow me in a van and and beat me up in the van and throw me outside the van and leave me on the street and I'd have to walk home and all that stuff. I felt like uh, I need to make myself look more fragile so they feel sorry for me. It cultivates itself and grows and grows and grows. And Before you know it, it's not about that anymore. It's actually about you've, you've got it. You've got anorexia and you can't stop it. The media at the time really latched on to Daniel's narrative, which I guess is understandable but the handling of it bordered on irresponsible. Remember, these were the same outlets who went from, look at these cute kids, to bit of puppy fat now, who do they think they are anyway? Poor little rich kid, how could he have done this to himself? Won't somebody please think of the children? That said, Daniel knew that if he was going to be tabloid fodder, he wanted to get his version of the story out there first and foremost, and at least have some control over the story. 
And if tabloids like Queensland's Courier Mail were going to plaster headlines like eating disorder rocks teen star, rocks, see what you did there, then Daniel would just have to cop it and hope that sharing his story would help some of his fans who might be going through similar problems. For her part, the writer Elisa Blake said she didn't know that that's what was going to come out of that Rolling Stone interview. In fact, apparently, the rumours around Sydney at the time were that Daniel was on heroin and or gay, and the big secret he was going to reveal was related to that rather than mental health and anorexia. In fact, that profile in Australian Rolling Stone got a hugely positive response. The thing about being a teenage rock star is that you kind of know what your fans might be going through. Growing up is like a civil war, after all. Yeah, you kind of, like, especially from Newcastle, it's quite a, like, you know, it's quite a boys of boys kind of town. So that talking about that kind of stuff, just, I don't know, it was just, it was just hard to do it. We just didn't talk about it. That was, that, was our, that was our way of dealing, it, dealing with it. It's very mature of us. For the Neon Ballroom tour, Silverchair for the first time brought in an outside musician. Because of the extra piano and string parts on Neon Ballroom, the band recruited keyboard player Sam Holloway of the Melbourne band Quadrazine for both local and international legs. On stage, this was the era of Daniel in the sparkly shirts, neck-length hair and glittery eyeshadow. It's also the era of his possibly prescription drug-fueled stage banter, or ranting, depending on your um, point of view. Some writers would dwell on that, but it seems like Silverchair were the only band Australian music journos would tut-tut over if they put a foot wrong, even though much worse behaviour was common in the rock world in the late 90s. Oh no, Daniel got pissed off at an unresponsive crowd. Oh no, Daniel might be on drugs. Well, prescription drugs to help with his depression and anxiety. Whatever will we tell the children? For much of 1999, the band were a travelling circus once more. After touring Australia, they rolled on to North America, where they played with The Offspring and again supported the Red Hot Chili Peppers. I do wonder how they were received at those shows. And then on to the UK and Europe, with Melbourne rockabilly punks The Living End in the support slot. Thanks, Melbourne. All right, after three, we want you all to say, hello, Australia, but not yet. After three, okay, are you ready, Melbourne? Are you ready on the balcony? Yeah. All right. One, two, three. That was good, but I didn't understand. That was great. Anyway. What? Uh, hello, Australia. Thanks. For a lot of fans, I think Neon Ballroom is the platonic ideal Silverchair album. Lots of experimentation and expansive sonic elements, but still a lot of rock and grit. Spoiler alert, Diorama is my favourite album. But Neon Ballroom just sticks with you. It's so pained you can't help but engage with it. Even the name Neon Ballroom conjures up great imagery. By the way, what does Neon Ballroom mean anyway? Well, I think it kind of sprung about by itself, you know, the whole uh, new, old mixed together. Neon being new, ballroom being old. Yeah? Yeah. Oh, thanks, Chris. I mean, Neon was hundreds of years old even in 1999, but I like it as a name. As I said at the start, Neon Ballroom drew a line in the sand. After making this album, Silverchair were free to go anywhere musically. Daniel could follow his muse all the way to the end of the rainbow, 
and embark on his most ambitious work to date, Diorama. But that's for another time on Too Much of Not Enough, a Silverchair podcast. Thanks for listening. This podcast is written, produced, and performed by me, Daniel Hedger. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please tell your friends or your enemies if they like Silverchair. Rate, review, subscribe, follow me on social, email me, you know how by now. All music is by Silverchair, owned by Murmur and Eleven. I believe all music is being used with a fair use exemption for criticism as per copyright.com.au slash about copyright slash exceptions. I also use YouTube for old interview and concert clips. Hit me up if you think I shouldn't or don't. The band and their management do not seem too fussed about keeping a legacy internet presence, so I'm considering what I do archival work. See ya.